I invite your attention to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, will be our text of consideration this morning. As we have walked through Titus, we have seen that Paul has one primary focus, that Christians would live lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul's focus remains the same, that Christians would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with their lives, but he shifts now from behavior within the body of Christ to behavior and our behavior as Christians in a godless society. And so we want to consider what that looks like this morning uh, from Titus chapter 3. And if you have found your place, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as many, if not all of you know, uh, to become a member of Grace Covenant Church, we have a membership process that we go through. That begins with a membership class that introduces a person to our church and, and our doctrine and, and what we believe as a church. There's a membership application in which a person includes their information and their written testimony and those sorts of things. And then uh, there's a membership interview. And, and this component of the membership process, this pastoral interview is so essential to our church membership process because in that process and in that interview we ask several questions of a prospective member. One of them is what is the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we're on the same page and we understand that fundamentally the thing that unites us together is our salvation in and through the gospel that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But then another question that we would ask would be, how did the Lord work in your life to bring you to understand the gospel in that way? In other words, what's being asked is, what is your testimony? How did the Lord come to save you? What were the events of your life that brought you to saving faith in Jesus Christ? And so on the one hand, we want to ensure a proper understanding of the gospel. But on the other hand, we want to ensure as best as we are able that the person has a credible profession of faith. Now, nervousness aside, each and every one of us ought to, to some degree, be able to articulate the gospel and how the Lord worked in our life to bring us to understand the gospel in that way. And so, as of recently, I've heard many of your testimonies, and I'm encouraged and rejoicing in how God has worked in diverse ways to bring us all to faith in Christ Jesus. 
And so it's remarkable to note that on one hand, we all have the same testimony. We share in the same gospel, that we uh, have received the gospel in the same way. And on the other hand, it's rejoicing to know that God worked through unique circumstances and diverse details to bring us to faith in Christ. And so the core components of that testimony, the question that we ask and the reason that we ask it, are actually found here in Titus 3 verses 1 through 8. After all, what Paul is articulating to us is that every Christian's life comes about in the same way and continues in the same way. He says that we've all been called out of our former way of life. He says this in verse 3, that we were once foolish and disobedient and enslaved to passions. We were called out of our former way of life, and we've now been given new desires and, and new degrees of desire to follow Jesus. And we were all saved, as he says in verses 4 through 7, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and that not one of us has been justified or saved by our own works. And so while the details of how that plays out in each of our lives is different, every truly born-again believer can identify with these core aspects of salvation. But the one that we want to highlight this morning is in verse 8. He says there in verse 8, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so Paul is saying that those who believe God will be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is why when many of you asked about what to include in your testimony, we said, tell us about who you were before you come to know Christ. Tell us about how you come to know Christ, but be sure to tell us how Christ has changed your life. Paul's purpose and goal here in calling Christians to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ is to do so through their good works. A post-conversion change to some degree is an essential part of a credible profession of faith. In other words, true believers devote themselves to good works. Now, as we mentioned last week, it might be popular in some places and with some people to say that there is no need for any change in the life of a true believer, that a person can be saved and not submit to Christ's lordship, and that there can be deliverance from the penalty of sin without the deliverance from the power of sin. But here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and throughout the book of Titus, Paul clearly states otherwise. That a person who has come to know Christ by faith will be renewed in their desires and in their ability to devote themselves to good works. Paul says in chapter 1 that truth leads to godliness. And therefore we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ before one another and before the world around us. Because we've been called out of that world. Paul has said in chapter 1 that we, are, we live in a world that he says in Titus 1 verse 12, one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This was a society that had devoted themselves to pagan idolatry and sexual immorality. This was a culture that was defined by selfishness and evil and a, and a false gospel of works. And so we live in such a society marked by idolatry and sexual immorality and moral freedom and materialism and one of hostility towards the gospel of Jesus Christ that is by grace alone. 
And our responsibility in such a godless culture is to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says that we do that by good works. As it says in verse 8, those who have believed God must devote themselves to good works. And so for our time together this morning, we want to consider what it means to do good works and the reasons why we do good works. And so if you're following along and you're taking notes, we devote ourselves to good works first because we have a new calling. We have received a new calling. And that new calling is a result of God's grace alone. Remember, think back to chapter 2. As we were there last week, we rehearsed and, and understood the grace of God in our lives that Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to wretched sinners. And this grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to embrace the instructions of righteousness to pursue God and his word. We saw that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from our former way of life, to cleanse us and to make us zealous for good works. We saw that grace and grace alone saves And it's in light of this amazing grace that Paul calls us to our new calling. He calls us to devote ourselves to good works. And this section, verses 1 through 8, is bookended by this calling to good works. He says to remind them of good works in verse 1. And he says that they must devote themselves to good works in verse 8. But the question that should be on all of our minds is this. How do we understand good works? What is the definition of good works? How do we know what qualifies as a good work and what does not? And I believe that our confession helps us here as it summarizes the the various passages of Scripture. It says this, good works, in chapter 16, paragraph 1 of the Second London Confession, good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. What our confession is saying is that God alone is good. And if God alone is good, then God alone has the right to declare what is good and what is not good. We fallen sinners have a tendency to make up our own laws, define our own goods based on what fits our needs and suits our purposes in the moment. And so if we are to define good works, then they must be biblically defined. But this is not merely a part of our confession. No, Jesus teaches the same in Matthew chapter 15. The Pharisees come with a question and Jesus points out their hypocrisy to them. For they were imposing a law of man on the people of Israel and saying that a young man who no longer desired to care for his father and mother could give the money, the cost that it would require to take care of his father and mother, he could give it to the temple. And this would be honoring to the Lord, even though he was dishonoring his father and his mother. They were also imposing super, uh, uh, super scriptural laws and that they were requiring them to ceremonially, ceremonially wash their hands before they come to the table to eat. All of these things not required in God's law, uh, but were being imposed on them by the law of man. And Jesus responds to them, hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine human commands. 
They were developing their own system of good works. They were saying apart from God's law and apart from his character and apart from his word, what was good and what was not. And so we need to understand biblically and appropriately what it means to do good works. And so I want to give us five principles to help us understand what is and what isn't a good work. Number one, we must not call good what scripture expressly forbids. We must not call good what Scripture expressly forbids. Because there are all sorts of things that uh, we might call good or we might think would be good or even good intentions. But if God has expressly forbidden it in His Word, He who is good knows best. And so one such example of this might be a woman pastoring. We might think to ourselves, well, she's preaching God's Word and she's proclaiming the Gospel and she's shepherding God's people. What is wrong with this? Well, God has expressly forbidden such in his word, and so we must not call good what scripture expressly forbids. Number two, we must not require of others the commands of men that scripture does not require. We must not require of others the commands of men that scripture does not require. An example of this would be the ceremonial washing of hands. The Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not wash their hands? And Jesus, again, calls, says that you're commanding as doctrine human commands. We must not require something of others that Scripture does not require as a good work. Number three, we must not neglect to do what God calls good in the pursuit of some other thing that we consider good. We must not neglect to do what God calls good in our pursuit to do something else that we consider good. Again, going back to our definition of good, God alone is good. And if God has declared in his word that something is good and we neglect to do it in our pursuit of what we might think in our own hearts is good, then we have neglected to do that which is true, morally good. We have sinned against God and against his law. One such example is the young man who would give to the temple in neglecting his father and mother who are in need of financial care. They've broken the fifth commandment in some sort of false pretense of honoring God. Another such example is one who might devote their entire lives to missions or even to evangelism, which we might all consider to be a good thing. But if this man uh, leaves his family for months and years at a time and, and neglects his basic moral obligation to care for his family, well, then he has neglected to do what God has called good in pursuit of some other thing. Number four, we have liberty to do good in obedience to the general principles of Scripture. We have liberty to do good in, in obedience to the general principles of Scripture. In other words, the Word of God must not say, book, chapter, and verse, that this thing is good for it to be a good work. In other words, the stereotypical example is this. We can help the old lady across the street, and this is a good work. Because the word of God commands us, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we help the little old lady across the street in obedience to this command, loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we have done what is truly a good work before the Lord. And fifth, the final principle of good works is that good works are a duty for us in Christ. Because we have been born again, because we have been brought near to Christ, good works are not optional for us. We must, as those who have believed in God, we must devote ourselves to good works. And so Paul now in these verses gives some examples of what those good works might look like. 
The first is to submit to ruling and governing authorities. And this one, I believe, is particularly difficult in 21st century of America because we live in a culture of independence that says, I want it my way and only my way, and I'm not going to submit to anyone, and no one can tell me what to do. I'm a red-blooded American. I know what's best for me, and I'm going to do it my way. We, have, we value independence. And we value legislation that is agreeable to traditional values. And we value democracy, where everyone has their own voice. And yet, the Apostle Paul calls us to submit to the ruling authorities. And what we need to understand is that Paul would have never dreamed of the kind of governmental institution in which we have any sort of political sway upon uh, the powers that be. Paul was never surprised to find that worldly powers were opposed to the truth. The unregenerate will always rebel against God. And yet, in spite of that, Paul understood and wrote in another place in Romans 13 that the powers that are, the governing authorities that have been ordained in place, are ordained there by God himself. They're established by God and therefore resisting authority is equated to resisting God himself. Government is a servant of God to promote good in society. And so, dear church, we need to remember that the church of Jesus Christ is not a rival institution to the governments of this world. Those have been appointed for the control and regulation of moral good and the protection of life in this world. The church is not a rival institution to them. No, we are an institution of Christ for the kingdom of God. We are not of this world. And so the Christian, therefore, is not tasked to shape the culture or the government apart from the gospel of Christ. We shape the culture and we shape the government by our obedience to the gospel, even in submitting to unjust rulers. Therefore, we obey unless a command requires us to disobey God. Remember, that's what the apostle said in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. And so we obey and we submit. And this is not dependent on any particular type of government. This is not dependent even on how just or unjust that government is. And this is not dependent upon which political party is passing legislation at the moment. We submit because God says it is good to submit. We render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We render unto God the things that are God's because we are not citizens of this world, but citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we work, therefore, in eagerness. He says later on in verse 1, we must be ready for every good work. And so now Paul shifts to living in an evil society as a whole, hostile to the gospel, and yet we remain eager to do good works. As Paul says in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And so we labor to do good to all men, especially those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And through that work, people will be able to see a genuine spiritual transformation within us to the end that it adorns and beautifies the gospel which we say that we believe. And so Paul reminds us of these things. 
He further reminds us to be kind in our speech, to slander no one, to not speaking negative words against them. Paul urges to resist our natural inclination to say the worst about others. He tells us to avoid fighting, to avoid quarreling, but to pursue harmony and to seek reconciliation, to be kind and always showing gentleness to all people, showing courtesy to them, being good neighbors, and showing grace in our relationships. But remember, this is not a list of do's and don'ts, a list of good works necessarily for no reason. Remember, this is grace-motivated obedience. For the grace of God has appeared from heaven, bringing salvation to us. And we live a life that reflects the grace of God that we have received. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, for we too were once disobedient. As recipients of God's grace, we are called out of our former way of life. Look at verse 3. He says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. Paul shifts to remind us of who we once were. Paul reminds believers that we too were once unbelievers living according to our own desires. This is who we used to be. And if, even if we were converted at a very young age, this is who you would have been and were already certainly in your heart. It just wasn't given a chance to mature yet. This is who everyone is apart from Christ in their hearts and in their deeds. And Paul wants us to experience a fellow feeling with others who need to be saved. Those Cretans who are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. The Apostle Paul desires for us to identify with them, remembering that such were some of us before we come to know Christ. He says that we were foolish, lacking spiritual understanding disobedient, rejecting authority, wanting to be our own authority, setting up our own law for ourselves. And then he says we are slaves to our own passions and pleasures. Our will is leashed to the desires that control our lives. Yes, we choose to sin. And at the same time, because we are slaves, we have no power or ability to do otherwise. He says that we were once malicious and envious, hateful and detesting once another. Not only in our actions were we sinful and disobedient to the Lord, but also in our hearts. Our hearts were active in rebellion and wickedness against God. The foolishness and the disobedience and the deception says that our beliefs were tainted by sin. Our slaves, being slaves to passions and pleasures, our living in malice and envy says that our desires and our, infection, our affections were tainted and warped by sin. And our disobedience, our enslavement, our hate and, and detesting others says that our wills, our volition were enslaved to sin. And we disobeyed the Lord, not just in our words and actions, but in our thoughts and in our hearts as well. But Paul says no longer. We have been transformed. We have been made new creatures. And because we are recipients of God's grace, there must now be a contrast between our former way of lives and our present way of lives. We who were foolish and disobedient have now been made wise and righteous and obedient to the Lord so that we are able to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, all of this because we have experienced God's grace. And so, dear church, the charge to us from this text is to remember that we have a new calling. 
If we have been made new creatures in Christ, we have now received the new calling to not be as we once were, but to live out our holiness in good works by devoting ourselves to good works as it is defined in the word of God. But we must also remember that our good works have no saving effect on us. They cannot merit our salvation and our justification, nor can they merit an ongoing relationship with the Lord. Our justification, our righteousness is dependent upon Jesus Christ alone. They cannot earn our salvation and our works cannot keep our salvation. And even our best of good works are still tainted by sin, but God is delights to accept them anyways because we are in Christ Jesus. It was the Puritan John Bunyan who once said, there is enough sin in my best of prayers to condemn the whole world to hell. There is enough sin in my best of prayers to condemn the whole world to hell. Brothers and sisters, even your best of good works are so tainted by weakness and frailty and your own sinfulness, uh, the motivations of your heart and the things that you do, even your best of good deeds cannot earn God's favor for you and yet the wonderful news of the gospel is that because we are in Christ, God delights to accept them as good works purified before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we also remember that our former way of life should cultivate sympathy for unbelievers. Our former way of life should cultivate sympathy for unbelievers. Remembering who we were should help us to identify with lost sinners. Therefore, we must look at the lost as Christ looked at the lost, with grief and tears over their brokenness. Brothers and sisters, do we resent the lost? Do we resent their actions? Do we hate them because of the wickedness that they promote in our culture? Oh, brothers, we must remember that save for the grace of God, there we would be also, one commentator said this, only when we truly believe that apart from Christ, there is no more hope in heaven for us than there is for the worst of sinners. Then we can meet and we can minister the gospel to that one and to others. If we are to truly minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, we must see ourselves in their shoes, who we once were before Christ Jesus. And if it were not for the saving grace of God, there we would be also. And finally, we remember that we are engaged in a gospel mission, not in a culture war. We are engaged in a gospel mission, not in a culture war. Now, we understand that, that gospel living and, and lives that adorn the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel will change lives and even shape the culture over time. But our end is not to pass legislation and policies that align with Christian moral values necessarily. The end of our mission as a church is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that their lives are transformed the way that our lives have been transformed. And then that will trickle out into all of society. Brothers and sisters, our goal is not to win an argument of intellect, but to preach the gospel that transforms sinners such as I. We remember that we are engaged in a gospel mission, not a culture war. And so Paul reminds us of our new calling as new creatures in Christ. But how is it that we're able to perform these good works? 
And that leads us then to the second thing that I want us to see from this text is that we devote ourselves to good works because we have a merciful Savior. Because we have a merciful Savior. Look with me again at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. The transformation that we see from verses 3 to verses 1 and 2 is completely the work of another. And he is called God our Savior. This is used time and time again in the pastoral epistles. We've already seen it once in Titus 1. But it is God alone who saves us from our sins. And so these verses follow and explain the transformation that we just saw ought to be characteristic of the life of the believer in verses 1 through 3. It explains how that happens. And these verses are remarkably similar to verses that we're very familiar with in Ephesians 2. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And then verse 4 says, but God made us alive in Christ. And so Paul follows, uh, follows the commands uh, to remember these things with a reminder of who we used to be, or rather who we have been made in God. And he says this is a trustworthy saying. This was probably an early confession or an early creed or even an early hymn in the early church. And he says it's a trustworthy saying because it explains the work of God our Savior to save us. And God our Savior saves us first by revealing his character. He says this is an act of his love and an act of his kindness. This is an act of his mercy and of his grace. This is an act of God's love for all mankind. John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God has revealed his love for heaven from heaven and he has demonstrated his love and mercy for us, showing us compassion that we did not deserve. We saw last week that that word grace means unmerited favor or undeserved favor from God. This word mercy means not receiving what we do deserve. It's unmerited compassion. God is withholding that justice and wrath that we do deserve for our sins. And so we are saved by his mercy. And verse 7 says justified by his grace. And the loving kindness of God and his grace and his mercy, it says, has appeared. And just as we saw last week in Titus 2, that appearing of the love and kindness and grace and mercy of God is shown only in the face of Jesus Christ, who is described in another place as being the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus reveals the character and nature of God to us because he comes in compassion to die for us. And so God saves us out of sheer mercy and for his glory. But how does he accomplish our salvation? It says that he saves us, verse 5, he saves us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, before teaching us how God saves us, how he acts unilaterally to save us, he reminds us that there's one way that he does not save us, and that is by our works of righteousness. Our goodness and our righteousness was not a factor in God's grace appearing to us. We do not deserve it. In fact, we cannot deserve it. Isaiah says it this way. All of us have become like something unclean. 
and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquity carry us away like the wind. We are sinners, wretched before God, and the very best of works that we can do as Christians is not good enough for God, and yet he accepts them anyways. How much more than our best of works as an unregenerate person cannot merit the righteousness of God. We cannot earn his favor. There is, if there is enough sin in our best of prayers to condemn the whole world to hell, there is enough sin in the evil deeds of an unrighteous man uh, to condemn the universe to hell. God does not accept anyone on the basis of good deeds. Therefore, all credit goes to God in salvation. It is by his mercy alone. And he accomplishes it through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God. That word regeneration. In reference to salvation, it shows up only here in the New Testament. And it means an act of God by which he imparts spiritual life to sinners dead in their sin. Uh, that word regeneration is a, a technical theological term that is uh, used in, in metaphorical senses in other places in the scripture. In one place, Jesus says we must be born again. In another place, Paul says that we have been made alive in Christ and that we've been made new creatures. In the book of Acts, it's said of Lydia that as Paul preached the gospel, the Lord opened her heart to believe the things that he preached. In the book of Ezekiel, we read that we need a heart change, that our hearts of stone must be transplanted with hearts of flesh to believe upon the Lord. We are converted, we are regenerated by the sovereign grace of God. It's completely an act of God in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It comes upon us passively because God is acting to regenerate and change a dead heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He takes a leper and removes his spots he cleanses us by the blood of christ and regenerates us giving us new desires to serve him and he does this through the means of the preaching of the word of god peter says it this way in chapter 1 verse 23 because you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of god it is through the preached word. It's a supernatural act of God. And yet it comes upon people through the preaching of the word of God. The means that the spirit of God uses to regenerate dead souls and to make them alive in Christ is the folly of preaching. But to those of us who are being saved is the power of God unto salvation. We see this by analogy in Ezekiel 37. After the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, in which God will take our dead hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, there is an example given in Ezekiel 37 in which Ezekiel is whisked away in a vision into a valley of dead, dry bones. And as he stands there in this valley where he sees all of these bones around him, the Spirit of God says, preach Ezekiel. And so he begins to preach and bone comes together to bone, and there's sinew, and there's tissue, and their skin begins to cover them. And they begin to stand there, this undead, unliving army before Ezekiel. And then he's asked the question, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, only you know. And so he said, Ezekiel, the Spirit of God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. 
prophesy to the Spirit of God and the wind of God, the breath of God blows across this valley and breath of life is breathed into them and they are now made living souls. So it is with the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. The Word of God is preached, but it is the act of God alone to give them new birth, to give them new life, to make them new creatures in Christ. This is a unilateral act of God in His sovereign plan. But those He regenerates... The scripture says, so he renews. He renews them by his spirit as well. He changes them towards a new life. He transforms their heart, not a perfect heart of obedience, but a liberated heart, freed from the enslavement of sin, free to live in obedience to God. He changes their beliefs, changes their desires, changes their will, and begins the work of sanctification in them. All of this, the act of God in the life of he who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our salvation, the transformation that occurs within us, is an act of God. And it is an act of our Trinitarian God. The first actor that we see is God the Father. It is he who saved us. It is he who has revealed his loving kindness and grace and mercy towards us. It is he who sends his son. It is he who sends his spirit. It is the father who is the source and initiator of our salvation. But we also see that the spirit is poured out through Christ our savior. God operates in the salvation of sinners the same way that he operates always in his creation from the father through the Son and by His Spirit. And so the Son is the mediator of our salvation through His life and His death. He is the manifestation of the grace of God in the flesh, and He is the agent of our redemption. And then the Spirit of God regenerates and applies the atoning death of Christ, bringing us justification. So brothers and sisters, our salvation is an act of our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit acting in unison to save us from our sins. Dear Christian, the triune God has acted to save you. Oh, won't you rest in His glorious grace? Won't you find joy in His grace? And won't you be humbled by His grace? Perhaps you've been saved for a long time and you've been tempted to forget who you were before you were in Christ. Perhaps you've been tempted to begin depending upon yourself and your own righteousness. It was Jonathan Edwards who once said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded of this this morning, that we contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary for God to save us. But if you are here this morning and you have not experienced this grace, If you have not received God's mercy, my plea to you is to look upon Jesus. You need to be born again. You need to be made a a new creature in Christ. You need to have your heart transplanted. And that is an act of God alone. But the charge of Scripture is to repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And it might just be that the Spirit of God sees fit to give you that new heart this morning through the preaching of His Word. Believe on the Lord Jesus and receive forgiveness of your sins. And then you will be one who believes upon God. And as he says in verse 7, has the hope of eternal life. And you too then can devote yourselves to good works as those who are already in Christ and those who have already been justified. 
for those who are in Christ, those who have been regenerated, those who have been justified by the grace of God alone. Paul says in verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. He grants hope of eternal life, making them heirs with Christ Jesus. And it's lost in our English translation, but that word might does not communicate possibility. No, it communicates result, a surety that this will certainly come to pass. Those who have experienced God's grace and have been justified by his grace will most certainly be made heirs with Christ and have the hope of a future salvation and a future glory with him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if you have believed in God, devote yourselves to good works. And if you are here and you are striving to please God by your works, the charge to you is to believe on God. Believe that by His grace He will save you. Believe that by His Son He has redeemed you. Believe that justification is by His grace alone. Because as Paul says in verse 8, true believers are devoted to good works and we are saved unto good works. This ought to be the testimony of every believer. This is who we once were. And this is how we come to know Christ, by His regenerating work of salvation alone. But by His grace, this is who we now are. We've been transformed. We've been made new. And now we desire to devote ourselves to good work because we have been saved by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and now been made to desire to, do, to adorn that gospel before a world that is dead in sin. And a world that is in desperate need of the same regenerating, regenerating grace that we ourselves have received. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we bow before you, thanking you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have done for us what we truly could not do for ourselves. You have changed our hearts. You have changed our lives. You have made us new creatures. You have given us new birth from above. You have made us alive. So Lord, we rejoice in that. We find humility in that. Remembering now this, this morning the truth that we so often forget. That the only thing that we contributed to salvation was our sin. So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your electing love that you set upon us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.